This is the Bread of Life, a ministry of the Bread of Life Fellowship in Boise, Idaho. We are pleased to have you join us as we offer up God's Word as the necessary food for His people. The Word of God finds its fullest expression in the person of Jesus Christ. May He be exalted before you today. Now here is our speaker, Joel Van Hoogen. In Hebrews 11, verses 11 and 12, we're told of the faith of Sarah, who believed God was faithful and received strength to conceive a child of promise in her old age. It is a great thought, but we need to add some footnotes. Sarah didn't always have that kind of faith. God had to grow her in the faith and bring her to the point where she could trust Him for something so great. And He did. And He'll do the same for you if you ask Him to. God says, now, Abraham, I'm going to take you to this land, but you're going to live there like a foreigner because I'm not bringing this to you for your own self to receive it and abide in it as the one who possesses it. I'm giving you this land so that your children and the nation that will rise from you will possess this land. And I think Abraham and Sarah can accept that. They can accept that they can go to that land and they have to live in that land like strangers and intense because, well, there's a multiplying factor to their life that's beyond their ability to see that God is going to send. So this is their expectation. We're going to live in these tents like foreigners in this land that our children are going to inherit. But here's their other expectation. We should be hearing in these tents the sound of the voices of our children. We should hear our children at play. The promise of the great multiplication that will take place in our lives. But they don't. Not the cry of one child. Now, one thing he might expect, all right, I go to the land, I live as a foreigner, God said to that, but I'm living there because it's from my children that this great nation will arise and no children comes. And the years go by, and the years go by, and the years go by, However hard they might try to produce children, it becomes clear that Sarah is not capable of having them. And so, wanting to help God keep His promise, they are thrown back upon their own resourcefulness. Sarah comes up with a solution to help God out. I'll give Abraham my servant Hagar as a surrogate. She can provide for Abraham the son that will be the promised one that will bring about this great multiplying force in our lives because it's not happening with me. I don't have the ability in myself, apparently, but I'll think of another way. And, well, as a result, Ishmael is born. And as you can imagine, and as the Bible even reveals to us, this promise of God now seems to be a wedge that comes between Sarah and Abraham. This one thing that she had done as an expression of her own resourcefulness to answer the promises of God illustrates for us what happens when we turn to our own resources when attempting to achieve God's purposes in our lives. Almost always, it creates something of a problem for ourselves. When we try to bring about God's plans in our power, we produce something that is illegitimate. It doesn't produce the blessing that we sought after. It creates burdens to be managed and to be put up with. And these failures to trust in God oftentimes remain with us or they give us remaining, lingering, disappointing results that tell us about how not to do this Christian life. They linger around us and they remain around us to teach us the lesson constantly of what happens when we don't trust in God and we trust in ourselves. 
I think of an example of this way in which we try to produce things in our own power and our own energy. I'm thinking of a pastoral associate of my father, a friend of my father's, who had a very successful church. It, so successful that he, he wrote a major book about it, and it was read by many different individuals. And actually, even today, when I'm visiting different pastors, friends, it's not uncommon for me to see this man's book on their shelves. And my first senior pastor, when I was a young pastor, knew this man as well. And he once told me that he thought this man was so capable in his abilities that he could run General Motors and make it a better and more productive company. I mean, this guy is just successful at whatever he does. And this man was a good man. He was actually a very wonderful man. And I was fortunate enough in my life to count him as a friend as well. He once told that he felt that he had figured out the formula for developing a great and big church. In fact, he was certain that he could reproduce it anywhere that he went. On that basis, at one point in time, after having built a very great and well-known and famous church, he left the United States to go and try it in Canada, not very far from where I live. That's how I got to meet him. And he failed miserably. I mean, he failed miserably. And after the church had sent him out, he met with me and he blamed it on his failure to calculate the nuances of the Canadian culture. You know, I think I can do this with Americans, but I'm not sure if I can do this with Canadians. Well, there is a difference between them. Listen, in the 80s, particularly in the late 70s, it was these kind of get-it-done men with their good ideas that were speaking the lives of young pastors like myself. I remember taking his advice, also advice on how to deal with the nuance of the Canadian culture. I didn't handle it any better than him, I don't think. As a result of that, I recall that I got together with another individual, another pastor who had joined forces with myself. We went off on a retreat at the behest of a number of other individuals for our denomination, and we came up with a 10-year plan of great things that we were going to accomplish. And I still keep the 10-year plan in a file in my office. It was really wonderful. It was glorious. When we went back and we announced it to everybody, it was received with enthusiasm, and we utterly failed at it. I mean, we utterly failed at it. And I'm glad we failed at it. It wasn't God's plan, and we were pursuing it in our own ingenuity. We had written out long outline charts of the progress of how we were going to accomplish it. We put timelines on it. We began to exact it. We began to think of all the measures for accomplishing it. We, we calculated all the words and phrases and things we'd have to say in order to cast and promote this vision with the proper amount of passion to leverage it into an action. We worked hard at it. We failed at it. Actually, I've told people this before. One of the things I learned from that experience, at least for myself, and I don't think God has taught this to other people. He's just taught this to me. The lesson God taught me is that everything that I've ever worked really hard at to succeed at, I've utterly failed at. Now, I'm not against hard work. And I don't know whether the principle applies itself to the work that you do in the regular marketplaces of this world. But when you're called to do God's work and to build God's church and to be an agent to bring forth and work for the growth and development expression of the kingdom, when it's those things, those things do not go forward with success when it's based upon your planning, your strategy, your energy, your effort, your flesh, your powers, your instinct, your resources, your resourcefulness. And the sooner you learn it, the better. And that's what I learned. That's what God taught me. What God taught me was, Joel, you can't make it happen. You cannot orchestrate the victory or the pathway of multiplication and success 
that I am planning and that I am orchestrating. And God was gracious to let Sarah's plan fail miserably. It remains a witness of the trouble that's caused by trying to produce God's work through our own resources. That's one of the lessons we learn here. Here's a third thing we see here. I want you to observe how God patiently is developing faith in Abraham and Sarah. And I want you to see this in light of the design that he has for life. In other words, the very equation that God runs to bring people into his fullness and into his life and into his power. And look how God patiently brings to the point of faith to see God for this kind of life. We actually don't know how many years transpire. My assumption is that Abraham and Sarah were in the prime of their childbearing life when they ultimately first heard God's call and took off to the place where God was leading them. That was the one thing that they probably thought, this we can take care of. This part of it will be our part and God will bless it and multiply it. But a number of years have passed since that first occasion of promise in Genesis chapter 12. Actually, we do know that 14 years since the time in which Sarah exercises her own resourceful plan of giving Hagar to Abraham, 14 years pass before God brings the solution or the answer or the first expression that he's fulfilling the promise when he gives to them Isaac. And at this point in time, Abraham is 99 and Sarah is 90 well past the age of childbearing, and she's consigned to the reality that her solution, Ishmael, will have to be God's answer for them. But it isn't a solution that is any great blessing to herself. It's just the way God must be operating. The problem is that our solutions to God's slowness are never God's answers. God's just slow for a reason. God is hesitant because he's not bringing us to the answer. He's bringing us to faith that will lay hold of the answer. That's what she's going to learn. By this time now, I'm sure that Sarah has no thought of her own abilities, which she once thought of and dreamt of. She is bitterly disappointed in her own effort and her own resourcefulness in bringing forth God's plan. In Genesis chapter 17, God appears to Abraham. Now, Abraham is 99, as I say. And he expands on the promise. Well, actually, we don't know how old Abraham is in Genesis chapter 17. We know how old he is in chapter 18, but we're getting close to that time period. Now time is kind of condensing together. God appears to Abraham, and he expands upon the promise that he gave to Abraham when he told him that he would be the father of a great nation. On this occasion, God tells Abraham that he's going to be the father of many nations. It's not like God holds back this promise. God even says it's more than that, Abraham. And that he's going to be exceedingly fruitful. And then in Genesis chapter 17, verses 15 through 16, what they assume when the promise was first given, God says, you were right. And God indicates that this promise is not coming through anyone but Abraham and Sarah. He says, now you're going to call Sarah's name princess. And the Lord is going to give her a son. And she is going to become, listen to this, she is going to become nations. Nations. And God reiterates the promise. What Abraham does at that point, we're told, is he falls to the ground laughing. And he says to God, Oh, let Ishmael live before you. Let's just stick with what we've come up with, God. 
I believe you'll bring nations from me, but it's not possible for Sarah and I. Let our effort be enough for you. Take Ishmael. God says, no, it will be Sarah who will bear you the son of promise. And you're going to call his name laughter because Abraham, you've not yet begun to laugh. Did Abraham tell Sarah after that? I think he probably did. I think it's right to assume that he did. But God is not satisfied now that Abraham is communicating these promises to his wife. God is going to communicate this to her as well. God is going to bring her into the hearing of his own promise. So in Genesis chapter 18, God comes to the tents of Abraham and Sarah in a theophany in human form. In verse 9, as God is communing with and meeting with Abraham, God inquires after Abraham's wife and says, Where is your wife Sarah? Sarah must have heard her name, came to the edge of the tent where she was providing the necessities and resources to provide for the guests that were visiting with her there. The Lord appearing with two others. She hears her name. She comes to the entrance of the tent and she listens as the Lord says to Abraham this. I will surely visit you again this time next year. And when I do, Sarah, your wife, is going to have a son. Now it's Sarah's turn to laugh and she does. God says, "Uh, why are you laughing? God's answer to her laughter, by the way, is anything too hard for the Lord? Sarah says, well, I wasn't laughing. The Lord says to her, no, you, you did laugh. You did laugh. And she did. Thanks for joining us for Bread of Life, a ministry of the Bread of Life Fellowship in Boise, Idaho. For a copy of this broadcast, just call us at 208-331-4096. Until the next time, God bless you.